When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. David Tennant does a podcast with Gordon Brown. So, Gordon, thank you for being here. I do appreciate it. Well, it's great to be here, and it's great to to see you again and uh, to talk to you. We are both sons of the manse. Yes. Our fathers were both uh, ministers of the Church of Scotland. And when I was growing up, lots of people asked me, whether I had ambition to follow in my father's footsteps. I don't know if that was something that... Maybe there's a tradition of that in Church of Scotland families. I don't think that was ever going to be for me. You were never going to or, wear a Or for my two brothers. No. And, and, and funnily enough, I don't think my father... I don't know about your father. I don't. My father never really encouraged me no, or, or, or suggested that this would be the way forward. I think, I think there was a time in the 1920s, 1930s when... For, for a family, because my fa- father's family came from farming stock, uh, uh, that to either be a teacher or a minister or a lawyer was the, the way out mm. and the way forward. And so, you know, there was a, there was a lawyer, there was a professor, there was a, so my father was a minister. But I, I never thought that that was going to no. be for me. And also, of course, religion and politics are very difficult. <laughs> so if, you, yes. if you're doing po- My father used to have this uh, story about one of his uh, friends. So uh, he couldn't say to his congregation the people that he was preaching to every sunday uh, vote labor or vote yeah. that and so you could tell by the hymns that they chose uh what what to do so if labor won the election it would be now thank we all our god <laughs> if labor lost it would be dear lord and father of mankind forgive our foolish <laughs> and if, if some third party won it was oh god works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform so yeah 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 you know the thing about um religion is that there were so many people in our in the in the church in the congregation some were tories some were liberals some were neighbor you had to be very careful yeah so my father was always very conscious of that i don't know if that was the same with you that you I don't know. i think well i think my father's politics probably were slightly changed a bit through his life but you're dad was always a labor man was he uh i don't know actually because right. one of the things is uh you didn't really you, they always said to you your vote secret i mean right. remember that they grew up in an atmosphere where the vote was won in the sort of 1918 for women 1928 was the first time that women had the vote and i think they always prided themselves in the fact that vote was secret i mean i knew where my, my, my father was was voting but he didn't go around telling people and right I, I don't think his congregation would know no. he was very careful so I always uh, said he was he was too careful. He should have been more upfront. But uh, anyway, right. anyway, I understand now. <laughs> <laughs> but did you have political discuss- discussions at home? Was it? Something? No, I, there was political discussions. But I mean, I wanted to be a footballer. Are you sure? I, I mean, I, I was growing up in uh, Kakodi, and uh, I was playing uh, football for the for the school, but I was playing football for the um, uh, the, the boys' brigade. And, this, and then I was uh, playing rugby at school. But I always thought, originally, that my great ambition would be a footballer. Then if you can't be a footballer, you want to be a football manager. Uh-huh. A bit like the Roy of the Rovers, you know. And then you want to be a football owner if you, can, yeah. <laughs> if you can't be the manager. And so I've ended up with 5,000 shares in Wraith Rovers, my local team. Oh, you do have some? Yeah, but that's, okay. that's sort of charity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you lose the money the minute you give it. 
Could you? But was there a point where you could have been a footballer? Were you good enough? No, I don't think so. I played. I actually was probably better at rugby in the end. But right. I played a lot of rugby for my for school. And then I got injured. I got this eye injury when I was only sixteen, and I lost the sight of one eye playing playing rugby. Sure. And so I was then banned sine die, if you like, from right. <laughs> from sports. But uh, you know, I still still can run and swim and all that sort of thing. But but rugby was certainly out by then. Did that feel like a big loss in your life? It was actually. It was. It, I don't. I don't mean obviously the loss of your sight is one thing, but the loss of sport or something. Yeah, yeah, it, it changes you, and, and and so there are turning points in your life, and. Uh, so I, I actually, for a variety of reasons, went to university at 16. I arrived the first day I was at university. Uh, I then had an appointment to see a, an eye surgeon. I went to see the eye surgeon and I was in hospital and I was being operated on on the day that I should have been starting my university course. Right. And I spent the first three months really uh, out of action because I was uh, in hospital. And then the, the same thing happened again. I had to have another operation. Then the same thing happened again and I had to, and I was off really for a lot of my first uh, year and a half at university. Mm. Uh, and uh, Well, more than that, actually. And so uh, it rather dominated my life for a while, trying to trying to save my sight, mm. because, because then it happened in the second eye. And I really thought at that stage I was going to lose my sight because they'd failed with three operations on the first eye. So they tried the second eye, and you think it's not going to work either, but it did. And I was at the cusp of this new technology and... Uh, only 20% of these retina operations, because it was detached retina, succeeded in the time I was uh, being operated on. So I was a very lucky person. Now it's 90%, right. but 20% then. And uh, they were using all the old technology. And, uh, you know, there was probably no chance of saving the site my first time. But I got this brilliant surgeon who'd been trained in Chicago in all the modern retina techniques. And uh, he came back and I was virtually one of his first patients. And... Uh, he saved my sight, yeah. and so I was very lucky. But but it did dominate them um, two or three years. So I was all sport, yeah. and then of course you think, well, what are you going to do with your life? So you, you got to yeah. do something different. Did you suddenly? It's that's quite a big thing to go through at sixteen when you feel like yeah. your life is all potential. Did you suddenly feel a little bit more more mortal than most sixteen? Oh yeah, I think so. And it, it the, the funny thing is, uh, you've got an eye problem and you're you're losing the sight in an eye, but but the rest of your body's fine. So you're not you're not you're not so unfit that you. You're not aware that you could have been doing other things, and uh, it's quite a distraction. But you know, the the the, the when the final operation was done, uh, I, that was I was in my uh, fourth year, so, so I'd been having regular sort of hospital appointments, and uh, when it worked, it was it was amazing yeah. because I, I really had not expected it to work. I really did think I was going blind. In fact. For some time, I was getting all this thing from the Royal National Institute for the Blind, the talking book service, because, you know, they, they really, there was an assumption that these operations didn't work. Now, I was reading about, I was reading your, because your, you've written about your time in office yeah. recently, which you resisted for a while, didn't you? Yeah, I, I don't like looking back. I'll right, be, I'll be honest, and, and I think it's it's one of the most it's more uncomfortable things to have to do because you've got to admit your mistakes, which <laughs> of course is is a good thing in many ways that you have got to face up to them. But it but it's not it's not it's not the best thing. It's not the most exciting. It's not the most enjoyable thing to do. <laughs> but you, there's something you recount you recount a day you were you were prime minister in September two thousand and nine. And you woke up one day and you found that the vision in your good yeah, eye yeah. Had, had badly deteriorated. Yeah, and you, I, I you thought, worried that it was going to go completely. Yeah, I thought I'd uh, detach my retina again, and uh, and I thought this is this is it. And uh, I went to the Moorfields Hospital, which is. No, but uh, before you did that, and this is the bit that I find extraordinary. Before you did that, you kept a speaking engagement. I did. In I did, but then I couldn't but, see anything. But that's the bit. Why do you not kind of go? 
Okay, cancel the day. I'm going to hospital because right I, now. I, I actually, I'd made a commitment to do this school opening, and I. But I'm sure they'd I, have understood. They might have understood, but I did it, and then I went to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> and you and you had notes that you discarded because you couldn't see them, but you didn't yeah. want anyone to know. No, I didn't want anybody to know, and so you just you just keep going, and and uh, and I went to the school, did the did the did the visit. But they may, they may have thought that, that I was talking nonsense. I don't know. But I then went to those. But I think that says something extraordinary about you. It's it's either something wonderful or something bonkers. I'm not sure which it is because that's that's a that shows incredible sort of. I, I think it was a sense of obligation that I promised to do this, and I knew I could do this, and then I could go to the hospital. But it was very early in the morning, so I think I think it probably was nine o'clock. But are you not? As a human being, are you not beginning to panic? There's something you've sort of feared all your life is sort of occurring. <laughs> yeah, but 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 you 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 got to keep going as well. And uh, you know, we made an appointment to go to the hospital. I then arrived at the hospital and then got seen. Then he told me that I had actually detached my retina and it was really needing an operation. And I arranged to go on a few days later to get this operation. Mm. So um, it was a bit uh, it was a bit strange. Yeah. And all but, that, but, you know, duty. You, you've got to do the things you promised to do, and I think I think we did it. And then, uh, uh, you know, it, I didn't lose much time. So, do you do you have an ability to compartmentalize? Do you, are you able to kind of go? This is happening. This is very real, and this is a very vivid thing which has to be dealt with. But right now, I'm doing a speech <laughs> in Hackney. I think we all have this ability to compartmentalize, as you as you as you put it. I mean, you know, you put one thing to a side when you've got to get on with something else. And uh, if I mean, in the, the job I was in, you've got to be able to concentrate on the issues that you're dealing with, the things that are at hand. And if you allow yourself to be diverted too much, then you you, you actually lose the, the the ability to make good good judgments. Maybe people thought I didn't make any good judgments anyway but you lose the ability if you if you if your focus is not on the on the issue at hand I, I i i i absolutely agree with you but i think it's easier said than done i mean i commend your ability to do it do you think you got that from is that a work ethic is that from your it's, parents it's, i think both my parents had a very strong sense of duty i think i think probably you were brought up with the same and in, in, in scotland's very much uh a trait that uh, certainly came through the uh, the church, through religion, uh, that uh, you, you've got obligations to other people. You've just got to you've got to get on with it, and uh, you don't complain. You just get on with it. Yes, I think most. I think a lot. I more think you decided I was mad that day. No, I, did, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I think I was just carrying out. A I think particular... it's extraordinary. I think it's brilliant that you were able to do that. I just think I'd have panicked. Yeah, there's there's certain things where you would, I think, but but I I just I knew I was going to see it, get it um, get get a, an appointment very soon after. Mm. Um, you became chancellor in 1997. Yeah, yeah. Would you just not long before your father passed away? Yeah. What did what did he make of that? He passed away only a, really just a year after I became a chancellor. Mm. And I didn't really, this is the problem of being in a job like uh, being chancellor. I, I didn't really have time to go and see him as much as I wanted to mm. or to listen to him. I spoke to him the night before he died and just didn't realize that he was he was not well. And I was rushing between meetings and I, I've always felt very bad at this. So one of the things about a job that is all consuming, like being being the head of the treasury and, and having to go to international meetings and having to prepare budgets and everything else, is it is it does it, it does cost a lot in terms of your your, your family time and mm. that, so that was a difficult time because you you feel very bad that uh, he uh, he 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 wanted to talk that evening and I just didn't have the time or didn't feel I had the time and of course I, I should have made the time. Well, but I, I, but would, 
was he demonstrative in his pride, or was that not how that, that's, he, you he might, did you things? Must not. You're Scottish. Well, I'm, you're Scottish. You I, might, you, I'm you imagining must know. what the answer might be. You, must, you must not. You, you know, you, you never, never talk yourself up. But always, mm. um, always uh, be modest. And uh, uh, and I mean, it's not humility and how I achieved it. No, but yeah. it's it's a bit of. Uh, uh, you, you, you're heading for a fall if you start to be too arrogant or yes. start start to uh, walk around as if you own the world. What about your mum? Was she? My mother was even quieter about really? this. I think <laughs> <laughs> she was less. They, they'd had some bad experiences with the press actually because uh, um, my mother. Uh, the, some of the, the newspapers. I mean, at that time, and they probably still do. They, they they phoned up my father and my mother, you know, just out of the blue and just asked them questions. And my parents were too courteous and too nice to put the phone down my father was exactly the same yeah. i'm sure you got it on a much uh well you you, you bigger you, scale than i did i don't I, I don't think so i think you would have had it big but but the the the, the um and then they would come to the door of the house and my, my pence instead of chasing them away would let them in and yes. give, give, offer them coffee them and tea, tea. <laughs> exactly, yes, exactly and, the then, and, and they would say gordon has said this and, and my mother would say something i don't know why he's saying these things <laughs> <laughs> and so mother condemns <laughs> Yes. Chancellor, in a, yes, in a trance. So, so, so these things, these things were sort of sent to try us, and uh, it, it was it was not naivety on their part. It was just that, that they were taught to, to be courteous to everybody, sure. and, and even the most uh, aggressive newspaper reporter was was get was given an, a welcome, which sure. uh, which of course he, that reporter probably didn't expect, and then yeah. exploited. Yeah. There's a great quote that your father came that made that I came across. Be grateful for what you have. It's remarkable what you can do without. Exactly. Which exactly. Is... And I keep saying that to my children. <laughs> and, and presumably and, they listen to you as much as you listen to him. I, I don't know. <laughs> but it, but it, but it was uh, one of his uh, his uh, key key phrases. Uh, cause, right. Because you, young, you 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 must know we were brought up. We didn't have much money. And ministers and mm. church were pretty badly paid you, mm. you had a house but you couldn't afford to heat it yeah exactly <laughs> because they gave the house with the job yeah and, and they were usually big houses with yeah. lot, lots of cold exactly room. that yeah and so uh so we, we were brought up not to expect uh, great sort of uh, consumer possessions at christmas or at birthdays or anything else mm. so and uh, he would say that he had managed to get by in in a, in a world where his father was even poorer. So so I, I you know yeah I, I was brought up to 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 be taught to to be sort of grateful for, for for what I had. Yes, you must have had ambition to aspire to the top job in the land. But ambition, I'm imagining, it was something of a dirty word in a Scottish Presbyterian household. Uh, duty, obligation. Duty. Yes. That's yeah. the way you spin it. But <laughs> that, that's almost certainly true. Uh, well. You know, um, when ministers apply or get offered a job in, in Scotland, it's 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 because they've been called, they've been summoned. Yeah. So uh, it's not their ambition; it's someone else bringing them on. But uh, no, I, I want I wanted uh, you know to, I was wanted I was really interested in sport. Then I was probably going to be a, a university or a lecturer or something like that because I did that for a bit, uh, and uh, and then then I got the chance to. Stand for. <laughs> I tell this story, then it's absolutely true that when I, the first time I was asked to stand for an elected office was for the Edinburgh City Council, for the Edinburgh Town Council, and I was a student then, and of course they were looking for candidates, and they, this guy comes to me and says, "Would you would you like to stand for the council?" And I said, um, "Well, I said I don't know much about council taxes and council affairs, and I keep saying that probably I never did, even when I was chancellor, know much about council taxes." And, uh, and 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 I said I don't know whether I can do that, 
uh, it'd be very difficult, to, you know, sitting on the council when I'm so young. And he said, look, Paul, he said, if we were going to win this seat, you wouldn't be the candidate. <laughs> he put me in my place. And that was an early, an early lesson. And did you? I didn't stand for that, but I did. I became the rector of Edinburgh University because we found the students could elect the rector to chair the university council. Right. So I did that for a bit. And then I became a candidate. I was a candidate in South Edinburgh where I'd been a student and didn't win the seat. And, and then I was chosen for my home area, which is Fife, um, in 1983. So, you know, there was a sort of... Yeah. And then I then I arrived in Parliament, and given we're talking uh, on uh, uh, the microphones, I made an almost fatal mistake. I arrived in Parliament, and this guy Gerald Kaufman, you may remember, sure. he was our foreign affairs spokesman. And this was 1983, 1984, and he liked to go out to the theatre in the evenings, and he liked to go to the opera, and he liked to go to the films and everything else. And so Tony Blair and I were around then, and so he used to ask us to deputise for him in any interviews he wanted to do. And there was a, this one night he comes to me and said, I'm going out to the theatre. He said, um, uh, I've promised to do an interview, which I really regret now, but I've promised to do it. And would you stand in? It's a radio station down under. Would you just go there into my office at 10 o'clock? They'll phone through and uh, they'll, they'll do the interview. And so I went to his office at uh, 10 o'clock. Uh, the radio, the, the, the um, telephone rang. I got this guy on the end of the phone. I said, can you tell me more about this? He said, no, no, we're going straight through to the studio. And the guy comes to me and said, um, Mr. Brown, he said, you represent the Labour Party in Britain. Uh, down here, uh, we've got a Labour Party that's very stuck in the mud. Uh, have you got any advice for them? And I was able to name drop. I said, I've just met your Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, and met people from the Australian Labour Party. They're doing really well. I said, Mr. Brown, he said, this is uh, Radio Auckland. You're speaking to the people of New Zealand. Oh! And our Prime Minister is David Longy and not Bob Hart. And what could I say? I had to act as if I never even said these words. It was so <laughs> embarrassing. My first big interview, foreign affairs, <laughs> talking to the world, and I got the country wrong. They're <laughs> just incredible. Uh, and I'll never forget that. And I thought, I thought my career was over. <laughs> So as you went through these milestones, elected to Parliament and then part of the Shadow Cabinet and then Chancellor of the Exchequer, were you able, and then of course Prime Minister, were you able to enjoy these milestones or did it feel like... Well, uh, I, I was long enough an MP before I became a minister. So I, I came in in 1983, I was an MP for 14 years before we were in government because this was this long period of Labour opposition, yeah. you know, Michael Foote and then Neil Kinnock and then John Smith. And then Tony, and, and uh, we had these uh, long years when you, you were a constituency MP. And I, one of the things I miss, actually, is being a member of parliament for my home area right. and representing people. Because you learn so much from what people come and tell you and what people ask you to do. I mean, <laughs> you do get lots of people asking you to do ridiculous things, but you do, you do, you do learn so much uh, from doing that. So I actually enjoyed being a constituency MP, and that was a real privilege. And I, I did that, obviously. But when you're a government minister, you've got to concentrate on being a, being a minister. So that was an enjoyable period, but it was a difficult period because we kept losing elections. Yeah, yes. <laughs> But then in 1997, were you able to enjoy that moment? Did it feel like a brave new world? No, the moment was difficult because I'd already decided that if we won the next day, I would make the Bank of England independent. Right. And we'd already promised that we'd do a budget immediately and we were going to do this big programme for youth unemployment to, to tackle it. And we were going to create this new deal and we we're going to have a windfall tax on the privatised, on the gas and the electricity and the telecom companies to pay for it. So we had this huge 
set of issues that we have to deal with almost instantaneously. Yeah. So I arrive, I think, down in London at sort of, I don't know, three, four o'clock in the morning or something, went to the the event where people were celebrating, stayed for a few minutes and then left. And I, I was in the Treasury immediately the next day to try and make the Bank of England independent. Right. But it's interesting you talk about that relentlessness. I mean, it must, a job like that must... Do, does, do you sense that life goes on hold for... I think I think politicians have got a shelf life, and I, I, I've come to realise this. There, there may be no accident why in America, you know, people go after eight years. Mm. And I think after six in America, the public are pretty bored with the president right. and, and are looking, looking for a change. And I think because of this constant media attention, because of the 24-hour sort of clock and that you know every every minute of the day you could be getting questions the thing about now is that if anything's happening people are not as interested in what the minister is saying they're interested in what the number 10 is saying right you know and you right. know i remember being asked about plots in coronation street what was my view on that right and you always had to have a view on a sports fixture and you know everything came back to, to you and uh and therefore, there's only a limited amount of time I think the public uh, will tolerate you. I think they get fed up with people pretty quickly. I think mm. there's almost overexposure because by its very nature, the, 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 the prime minister's in the firing line all the time. And so I think six years, eight years, I mean, it's too much. I think, you know, I, I was 10 years as chancellor and then three years as prime minister. I think I think the public probably feel that the shelf life of a politician at the top in these top jobs is probably half that, maybe six years or so. And I, I don't see many politicians surviving for long periods of time in the way that uh, people did in the 19th century. In the way, even, I mean, Tony was in for 10 years and Margaret Thatcher was in for 11, was it? And, yeah. uh, I don't see many surviving that sort of time in future. And and, and the, what's the personal cost to you of that? Because you, you're so... Uh, it's such a public existence. Well, the, it, it, it's difficult because, when you've got kids, obviously, because, mm. because you're trying to protect them from the glare of publicity. And so our kids grew up uh, for the first year, a few years, in, in Downing Street mm. itself. And it's a pretty strange atmosphere because yeah. because Downing Street, you see this door, but behind it is an office. It's not really a house; it's an office. Right. And there's all these. Well, you've been inside Downing Street and you've seen it, but you, you, you've got all these uh, people. You've maybe a hundred people working behind that door in different offices, and they're working in corridors. I mean, the whole place is falling down. Let's be honest. Right. I mean, everybody admits it after they leave. Right. And everybody is asked when they come into the job. Look, this place needs modernised. It needs to be completely gutted from top to bottom if it's going to survive for another century. And would you leave and go to Admiralty House, which is a place down the road, or go to some other building for a year or two? And usually they say it'll take three or four years. And you say no, because to be in number 10 is what people think a prime minister yeah. has got to be. You know, he's got to be there. And so you say, no, postpone it, postpone it, postpone yeah. it. So this modernisation will never take place yeah. because... My successors will all also feel the same way. You don't know how long you're going to be in there. Why give up three or four sure. years that you might be able to uh, be working there uh, for a modernization that you're not even going to benefit from or that, you know, is, is going to lose you the the, the, the use of uh, what is the most famous building uh, for, for at least the political um, decision making in, in, in Britain and perhaps in, in, in Europe. Uh, and so... You, 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 you want to stay in the building, but you, as people may know now, uh, the, the Prime Minister actually works in number 10 and lives in number 11. Uh, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer works in number 11 and lives in number 10. Very complicated yeah. set, set, yeah. Of, set of arrangements. 
Um, and these are flats. So kids are growing up in that, in that sense. And you, you, you want to protect them from the glare of publicity. Do they have very vivid memories of Downing Street? No, I don't think they do um, uh, now because so much has happened since. So they were quite, they were quite young when, mm. when, 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 when they left. But, uh, but obviously they see the photographs and that's more likely to bring their yeah. memories back. And, 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 of course, it was very difficult because, as, as you know, we had, a, we had a daughter who died after mm. 10 days. And that, that was a very difficult period because you, you want to be as far away from the public yes. uh, uh, arena as, as possible. And it's just, it's just you, you just can't do that. Yes. When, when something like that happens, it's obviously so deeply personal. You must crave anonymity in, in a moment like that. Yes. And, and, and also you... you um, you know, it's uh, you, you never want to be sitting with a child who's dying, who's your own child, but any child who's dying, and it makes you so aware of parents everywhere around the world, you know, and just, you know, my interest in helping children really is sort of magnified by everything that happened to us, and you, you never want to see an innocent or vulnerable child suffer again. You know, it's it's one of these things that just eats eats into you, and you, you, you want all the time to be doing something to make life better, at least for those people who are, those children who, who can get through do you think it changed the experience with Jennifer? Did that change how you did politics after that? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't want to go back into politics after that happened. I wanted to stay away. Yeah. But once I went back, I was determined that, you know, we'd do something uh, to tackle the, the problems that children faced. I mean, you know, it did inspire me to do more on the health service. It did make me feel more about the need to do something about child poverty. And, of course, when you see all these needless deaths in, in other parts of the world, in, in poorer countries, deaths that can be avoided because there's simply malnutrition or it's lack of health care or just um, lack of um, lack of um, money for food. You, you really want to do something about it. So it, it made me more aware that we had to do more about uh, about the needs of children. And, and, and you, I can't bear to see... Uh, I can't bear to see a child crying uh, through through being neglected or through suffering from from from, from some sort of illness. And um, I mean, there's a part of you when you see it that is angry that this should be allowed to happen. You've got innocent children who are being hurt, but there's another part that is simply compassion. You want to do you want to do something about it to just help help these children. So it, it definitely had a huge effect on both Sarah and me, and and, and we set up a, a foundation to, to to raise money because there was. This area of um, research into premature births had not really um, advanced much, surprisingly, so since there's so much great technology in the health service. And so one of the things that um, Sarah's been able to do is is to help that research on. And it's amazing what they've been able to do to help um, to help children, not just in Britain, but help children in other countries. I mean, there's, there's very straightforward things that are now being done, I think, that weren't being done 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Do, do you see... Uh, is Sarah very much a partner? In, I mean, she was with you. You were married yeah. while you were Chancellor. And yes. Uh, obviously, you moved into Downing Street together. Is she... Is she, is she w w what's her role in your life in, in that, at that time? I mean, is she a sounding board? Are you... Well, Sarah's, Sarah's very good. She's not trying to interfere in, in, in politics. But um, I think her advice about some of the issues that we're dealing with, particularly on, on, on women's issues and women's equality, has been very sound and very, very helpful. And I think um, she's got a determination and resilience that, that we both needed uh, when, right. when we were under attack from the press. I mean, it, it's funny, but... Um, 
you, you, you look back and you remember just how much uh, these personal attacks by the press uh, were uh, wounding uh, and difficult to, to, to bear because not because you uh, were so distressed yourself, but the time it took to have to deal with them. You were getting all these sort of, I mean, you know, the sun, for example, said I'd fallen asleep at the Festival of Remembrance. Mm. And that was a big story because it was like I was, um, you know, being discourteous to the troops and to people who had families of people who had died. And it just wasn't true. Mm. They, they, they had taken a photograph when there was a prayer and said I'd fallen asleep. The son also said that uh, uh, that um, I hadn't bowed at the cenotaph, and it's just just a complete lie. Mm. Uh, and uh, but you could take a photograph of me standing erect and say, "Well, he's not bowing at that point." But they didn't take the photograph sure. when I was bowing. So yeah. these things are there, and they. It's, it's not so much that you you, you feel that they uh, influence your behaviour, it's that they take up so much time because you've got to prove that this is wrong and you've got to make sure other newspapers don't do it and the television stories don't appear on it. And it it does um, become a, a distraction. And I think, I think people forget that um, the way some of the press behaved may, makes life very, very difficult, not because they've got something that is important that they're saying, but because... They, it is all all consuming to have to deal with their um, sure. critique and their and their in some cases their their untruths. Yes, I mean as an actor, you're encouraged not to read your your reviews because it doesn't help you to go. <laughs> oh, on, I stopped I stopped reading them a long that, time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but presumably I, part, I didn't even read the good ones because <laughs> well, no, they don't help either. I do know, they? they don't. Yes, but but presumably you, I bet you yours have been very good. No, uh, no, not all, not all the time. Oh, yeah. I can my, quote my, some bad ones that I should never yeah. have read. Back at you. <laughs> I mean, and the press were at times, as you've as you've been uh, recounting, vicious and often just plainly untrue. But, but of course, it's it's when they they find something that they know is acutely personal and can really, uh, you know, people can remember because you, you know, I remember there was, there was a letter I wrote to, to uh, the mother of a deceased soldier and I'd written this letter in good faith. You know, there were so many letters that we were writing at that time because we were losing a lot of men in Afghanistan mm. and they claimed that I had uh, misspelled names and they claimed all this and it wasn't true. My writing's not very good. It never was very good, <laughs> but... To claim that was very was very hurtful, but also again it took up days of a t of time just having to deal with the, this 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 wrong wrong wrongful allegation. And then I phoned the the um, the mother who had um, who had complained and gone to the son uh, and uh, got them to do this story. And then the son taped my phone call, and then they published it, but only those extracts that they thought suited their cause uh, it was very it was very difficult so so you, you you you've got to deal with all these things and you're, you're dealing with a financial crisis at the same time well, you know, yes. you're, you're having to negotiate uh, a whole series of uh, big changes in uh, in uh, economic policy not just in your country but uh, for europe and for the rest of the world and uh, this is a huge sort of distraction at the time that yes. you're trying to do these things yeah do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So when all that does finish, when you've been chancellor for all these years, you've been prime minister during the biggest financial crisis since the 30s, at least. since the 30s. And then you come to general election 2010... There's a bit of horse trading for a few days afterwards, but if, but you you but you move on, and like you say, out and on, out and on, <laughs> and, and as you say, it, it happens very quickly. It's do, pretty. It's does somebody pretty, else come and pack your bags? How does that work? You know, you go to America and people say, you know, you you meet uh, Bill Clinton and say President Clinton, and I keep saying in Britain, look, when you go, you not only lose the title. You lose the house overnight. <laughs> you lose any <laughs> ability to present yourself as <laughs> something. So it, it is pretty dramatic. Yes. Uh, you know, in, in America, they have a, tr- a trans- transition period. In America, the, you keep the title. Everybody calls them president still. In Britain, none of that. None You're of that. None of, out, none of that. It. You're out. And then you're very tired so you, you sleep for a bit and then you have to you have to get your and I, I think I'm right in saying that in, in, immediately after you left Downing Street you went to Scotland and Sarah stayed in London because the boys were going to school yeah I felt that the only thing to do was to get back to my constituency uh, you know to hang around London was 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 both stupid and, uh, and, and 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 probably counterproductive and you had to give the new government the the space and obviously they were going to take it anyway and uh, you had to give the labor party the chance to elect the new leader mm. because you, you you had to go uh, as leader as well having lost the election and uh, so i went back to scotland and we've stayed there ever since because our, our kids are now at school there and uh, it's uh, i come to london every now and then mm. but um, i i do like the fact that i i'm living where i was brought up and in the constituency which i represented for more than 30 years but when you do what so you've just left Downing Street. Sarah's not even with you, and you wake up in your house in. Concordia. Sarah actually came back to Scotland with me, and then came back down to right. London later. But but in those in those days and weeks immediately after, yeah, that, the boys sort of... the boys were still finishing the school. Sure. We didn't want to take them out of school no, before, quite right. before July, and then so so they were in London. I, I was mainly in Scotland, but I was still a member of Parliament. Sure. So I came, I came down for debates and for. Um, but presumably, your your day to day workload. Immediately, sort of gets a lot lighter. I mean, well, you've you... got to, you've got to write a lot of letters to thank people. Right, you, you, you've still um, got to deal with some of the follow through from the election and the raising money, for example, for the election was was a very difficult thing to do. Uh, and you're you're still a constituency member of parliament, so you, you want you want to show people that you haven't forgotten that that you are their elected member uh, with 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 uh, representing your your hometowns. And what about family life? Do you have to rebuild family life? Because you've, <laughs> you've got to be reintroduced to my children. Yes, no. well, to an extent. I, I, well, the, the good thing about Downing Street was that the, it's your office, but also your home. Right. And, and therefore, you see your children all the time. You know, if you were away, for example, doing a film shoot, or, sure. uh, you're away from your kids. Mm. And, and so you're, you're staying in a hotel or something. I mean, I'm actually staying uh, in the, the house that is also my office. And mm. so... Your children can walk in and see you at almost any time of the day, if uh, you know, and they and they, they can interrupt meetings in a way that's quite dramatic sometimes. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember with uh, General Petraeus and uh, Ian Paisley. I remember my, my 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 both both of these people. My, one of my sons uh, is coming in and said, "Teach me how to march." <laughs> to because General, General. Petraeus, <laughs> and I think I think Ian Paisley for a different reason, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it was very very funny. But so you you you, you actually. Probably more than many other jobs, your your, your children can 
be with you for some time of the day. Right. Uh, and therefore, it's it's not as uh, cut off in that sense so uh, from your family. It was a sort of difficult re-entry into no, no, domestic my, my, they, life. They did recognise me and they, they were right. prepared to talk to me. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, they had to move schools, so they, they were adjusting to that as well. Yeah, sure. Um and I also I also read that during 2009 you used one of your week's holidays to volunteer at a hospice in Fife. Well, I kept saying to people that we needed a, a giving society, and I actually wrote a book after I became prime minister that was about um, uh, community action and uh, and people giving the time to help uh, causes that were local as well as national causes. So I've always tried to promote um, the charities and the voluntary organisations in my own constituency. And Sarah and I decided that we couldn't actually just talk about it, that even if you're prime minister and you've got a holiday or something, if you've got, you've got to give some days to do this. And so we decided that this hospice that was actually an amazing, it still is, it's an amazing place in, our, in, in my constituency, which are the National Health Hospitals, which are not very many of them, but they did need volunteers. And so we agreed that for a week when we were up in Scotland on holiday, we'd go in in the morning and afternoon and we would we would help the, the hospice uh, uh, do a number of things that they were trying to do. They were trying to create a library, for example. They were trying to do some, some, some other sort of repairs and so on. I was useless at repairs, but I could move books around and things like that. So you were and, just, and you met the patients. So you were humping boxes of books around and you were... Th- things like that. But we, we, but the um, There's not many Prime Ministers who've done that in their whole No, and we didn't tell think. people about it at the time. No. We, 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 we didn't want to sort of um, advertise the sort of... As if you're trying to make yourself into something that uh, you just wanted publicity for. But yes, and I think it's quite good that uh, that people do these things, that you, know, that you give up some of your time to, to help people. And actually, um, being in a hospice and talking to people, you know, the, the patients, even though they're dying, are incredibly grateful for, for any help that they get. I mean, that, it's something that sort of almost surprised me because I, I hadn't known enough about about that, that experience. And, um, and uh, you know, maybe some are a bit angry at what's happening to them, but most are just grateful for the, for the small amounts of help they get from people who are both volunteers and staff. And the staff, of course, do this amazing job. And, you know, not, of course, just in the hospices, but right across the National Health Service. And you're all struck by the, by the amount of um, uh, dedication that you see and, and, and the great service. But, but I do think we should encourage more people. And I, I try to do one or two things that, that, that advance that now but we, sh- we do need people to, to give more and to give more of the time in particular and one of, one of the problems in Britain today is there's so many people living on their own and there's a lot of loneliness around that needs um, people to sort of say to people that they, they've got a friend and if you need a friend uh, we're, we're, we're there so it, you know it can make a difference but, but, but you know it's not something that you, you sort of um, it would have been wrong to have talked about it at the time I think I feel like you've been you, you were given a, a sense of morality, I, I presume, from your parents and from your upbringing. That, that is I, very... I, I think we both well, learned, learned in, 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 in Scotland quite the hard way, in a sense, that, that, that you, um, you, there are things that are expected of you uh, and there are things that you've uh, really got to get used to doing because that is what you should be doing. Uh, and it's not it's not a childhood that is sort of dull or boring or uh, without uh, joy or happiness. 
Uh, but it's just part of your childhood that that's what expected of you, as well as all the other things that you get honest in return. So. No, I feel that that humility and that moral compass absolutely defines you. Do you ever think it... My father used the word moral compass all the time, actually. Right. And uh, I think I think, uh, um, I think that was um, uh, quite a good word to describe his influence on me. Uh, well, two words, uh, mm. you know, that he was a moral compass. Do you Do you worry that as a politician it might also limit you yes. having a moral compass oh, i don't know about, I, I thought you worried about a politician that you were you what you can't do is become I mean, someone said there's only two types of politicians those who look like bishops and those who look like bookies you know people who are trying to sell something and people who are trying to be holier than thou and i, I don't think you can be either i really don't think if you try to be a bishop people will just pull you apart so you you mustn't you know, even if you feel strongly, I mean, for example, I, I felt strongly about many of the, um, if you like, the conscience issues, you know, and uh, I, uh, I, I said things about, you know, I, I, I wanted uh, organ donor donation and I couldn't get that through. It's now gone through thanks to Jeffrey Robinson, the MP that's got, you know, the people's organs uh, can now uh, be donated so that lives can be can be saved I was against assisted dying. Uh, I didn't. I didn't like the idea that um, there was a bureaucratic system for for declaring yourself uh, uh, now wanting to to be to, to 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 be dead and asking some bureaucratic procedure to be gone through. So I, I had strong views on a number of big big issues, but I don't really think that people expect their politicians or like their politicians to to try to sort of bring, uh, if you like, the the work of a priest or a minister into being a politician i think i think i think that's not what people expect of you and i think if you try to do that then you're almost certainly going to be accused of over moralizing and being pious and uh, holier than thou and i don't think that's uh, that's that's uh, that's a good thing i think there's perhaps something uh, uh, of an advantage now almost 10 years after you were in Down, downing street uh, you're, I think you're now regarded as an elder statesman. I think you're now looked to for wisdom. Do you, that, that just makes you feel old. Uh, I don't mean, not because David, of your years, I'm, just because of your experience. I, and I think people I, crave I a bit of wisdom. I, I, well, there are some uh, there's some evidence that wisdom does not grow with age. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, people sometimes ask your opinion on things, but mm. in, in the end, you know, I think. Uh, uh, you, you've just got to accept that uh, that you're out now, and that you you, you you can't sort of try and rerun the past. You've got to accept what happened, and you've if you can make an intervention that can make a difference. I spoke up very strongly against anti-Semitism, and when when there was a problem and has been a problem in the Labour Party, I'm very angry about universal credit, about the way that children are being pushed into poverty and the numbers of children in poverty, 3 million now, 4 million rising to 5 million in Britain. It's outrageous. We've got to do something about it. And obviously I'm unhappy about Brexit and I feel that uh, if we could only um, reopen this uh, debate in a way that listened to people who were Leave voters and, and, and understood the, the, the concerns, we could persuade them that, that being in Europe was not actually... Uh, or being out of Europe was not actually the real uh, issue that um, has to be dealt with. There are many other issues. So, just to finish, can I ask the elder statesman that you now are, are we going to be okay as a nation as we look <laughs> sounds like, into the distance that, at all the craziness that seems to be hurtling towards us? That sounds... Uh, are you, are you, you an optimist Are we going to be okay? Heart? Sounds like a question that's put to a sort of uh, a priest, isn't it? <laughs> 
I'm an optimist at heart because I actually believe in uh, young people. I believe in uh, people's capacity for renewal. I believe in uh, people's uh, willingness in the end to, 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 to look at questions on the, on, the, on the merits and not just be guided by prejudice. Uh, but it does take time and it does take work and it does take, um, you know, getting out there into the country, you know. And I think one of the problems at the moment is that people out there in the country feel very distant from the people who are sitting in Whitehall and Westminster. They feel that uh, nobody has listened to them. They feel that people uh, have, um, many of the our leaders are out of touch. And I, th- I think it's really incumbent on anybody who is in public life or in the public arena to actually listen more, to have a conversation more with people in the, in the country. And if they did so, I think, uh, I see, for example, on, on immigration, I, I've always thought if you actually explain to people the things that you could do to manage migration, you could win people around. I've always believed that when you come to this issue of take-back control sovereignty, if you actually explain that the German, the French, the Belgium, the Italian courts, they're standing up to the European Court of Justice just as we could. I mean, the, I think if, when you can actually get information across to people and you can have a dialogue with people and a conversation and, and treat people with respect, you can actually uh, win uh, arguments that seem to be beyond us. And at the moment, yes, you are right. We're an incredibly divided country. I wrote an article a few days ago for the Mirror when they asked me to do so, saying I thought we were more divided than during the three-day week in the 70s, the minor strike in the 80s, the poll tax in the early 90s, the Iraq in the beginning of the century. And uh, it really uh, is uh, is sad if these divisions are going to continue and the polarization is going to continue because what's actually happening is that people are accusing each other of betrayal. You know, it becomes a poisonous and toxic debate. So I think everybody who's in public life have got to make an effort to both to listen to people uh, and to see what can actually bring us together again because uh, Britain is more than a collection of uh, Remain and Leave voters. Britain is actually people who have shared values and they've got mutual interests and they've got common goals and we've got to find a way of bringing people together again. Gordon, thank you very much. David Tennant does a podcast with is a Something Else and No Mystery production. Produced and edited by James Deacon. Additional production from Chris Skinner, Steve Ackerman, Sarah Camlett, Josh Gibbs, Joel Freeman and Georgia Tennant. Next time. David, I can't believe you're interviewing me. It's so weird. <laughs> I'm in my pajamas. It was so past my bedtime. I'm having vodka for the love of Pete. Um, she's a wheeze. Also from something else. Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. Join Katie for a series of powerful and inspirational conversations with people who have triumphed over adversity. With guests including Fern Cotton... And what about when you get really lazy journalism? So like people that draw just one line, they take it out of context. And that's really sad because... It is, it is. And I've also been on the receiving end of it so, Mm. so many times. Sometimes to really tragic levels for me where I've really not felt able to cope with it. Yeah. Zoe Sugg and Nadia Hussein. 
I think the, the thing with women, firstly, is that women sometimes don't always like to see other women succeed. Mm-hmm. And I, I, th- I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of that. And I think that's why just it, it's really hard sometimes because it, 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 in the last four years, I've changed so much. Mm. Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps.